The following Knowledge at Warden podcast is brought to you by Vanguard, offering investments designed to help individuals and institutions reach their financial goals. Visit Vanguard.com. Michael Yusin is director of the Center for Leadership and Change Management at Wharton, but his study of leadership is hardly confined to the halls of academia. His research has taken him to Patagonia, Antarctica, Iraq, the base of Mount Everest, Houston's Johnson Space Center, the Civil War battlefield at Gettysburg, fire zones in Colorado and California, and public schools in Philadelphia, among other places. He is the author of The Leadership Moment, Nine True Stories of Triumph and Disaster, and Their Lessons for Us All, and Investor Capitalism, How Money Managers Are Changing the Face of Corporate America, among other books. Yusim's latest book is The Go Point, When It's Time to Decide, Knowing What to Do and When to Do It. In writing this book, Yusim asked more than 100 leading decision makers to analyze decisions they have made, to name their best and worst decisions, to describe how they reached them, and to comment on what, if anything, they would change about how the decisions were arrived at. Yusim is here to talk about the go point with knowledge at Wharton, including myself, Robbie Shell, editorial director, and McCool Pandya, editor-in-chief. Mike, since this book is about decision-making, how did you make the decision to write it? Good question to start with. We all do make decisions all the time. Most of them are highly personal. What we put on this morning when we got up and got out of the house, a small set, subset of our decisions, though, have ramifications for people around us, and sometimes those are people we are responsible for. They work for us, we command them, they may be in our community in some way. And there is a strain of thinking that I think is probably summed up with the psychologist's clinical term of decidophobia. Some people, even on what color clothing to put on this morning, they just simply balk at that decision. If it's highly personal, that's okay. Consequences, you don't get out of the house on time. But when it affects other people, you should, you cannot suffer from that particular clinical syndrome because you are going to ultimately uh, cause others around you distress, maybe even harm. And along that line, watching people in office, responsible leaders, many of whom, I, as I've watched, interviewed, witnessed, talked with, are very good at reaching decisions. They make timely decisions. They make decisions that are pretty good, but some don't. And as we think about American life at the moment, as we think about companies or life in China or really anywhere, it's at least it's striking to me that people sometimes in mid-level office, sometimes in high office, in some cases, are just not great at knowing when to pull the trigger and how to pull it when they do. And with that as an animating concern and being responsible in my own professional life for helping people develop their leadership, it did hit me personally a couple years ago, this needs some attention. And to give it attention, my method has simply been to go to people who are pretty good at making decisions, watch how they do it, witness them in action, sometimes ask them in retrospect to construct it. But ultimately, I suppose it is the, 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 the teacher's calling here, and that is to help people uh, either indirectly through the uh, through academic research that we uh, that I do publish as well, 
uh, or sometimes more directly by providing commentary that people can draw upon, see themselves in the commentary, and thus draw lessons for it. That's a very interesting point about decidophobia. Any uh, ideas what really causes it? And on the flip side, what leads up to a go point? See, that's, I think that's the fundamental question that we all need to have addressed because, in my view, we can all lead, we can all make decisions. It's just hard to master both of those arts. Some are natural-born. We've known people who are uh, within seconds of making a tough decision. They don't look back. Jack Welch famously at GE said, I never look back. I didn't equivocate about any decision. I just And I fell asleep every night exactly on time. Uh, for the rest of us, however, though, uh, decision-making and leadership uh, can be difficult, but it can be learned. And I think the basic premise that underlies the book, I think it just underlies reality, is that decision-making as a learned skill is learned really by making decisions. Critically, though, then looking back on those decisions to make certain you don't make the same mistake twice, that you have some sense for what went right as well. By way of example, I interviewed the chief executive of Lenovo, which is, of course, China's big PC maker, on this very topic for a couple hours recently. And I really, I guess, put the question in summary this way. Uh, his name is Liu, L-I-U. Mr. Liu, you came out of a state-owned and operated research center. The government of China funded you. you. That was where your budget was from. But now 22 years back, you broke off with a couple of friends, created what is now the third world's third largest PC maker. How did you learn to make decisions along the way? For And now the, the decisions being how to market, how to brand, how to price, how to hire. When you were doing none of those, making none of those decisions before the answer, really has stuck with me. I've checked this with other people. Many people will say this. He, at the end of every week, going back now more than 20 years, Friday afternoon, sits down with his direct reports, his top team, the five or six people he's closest to. They take time to review everything they've done that week, what decisions were good, what which ones were terrible. And with that, he has built a capacity no MBA degree, no formal training in decision-making, leadership, or management. I say all that by way of just really coming back to the main point, which is decision-making is a learned skill. You've got to make decisions, look back on them, and over time, to take it to one extreme, they reach a point of what Malcolm Gladwell, Gladwell calls in his great book called Blink, subtitle, Thinking Without Thinking, it becomes almost instinct or natural if you've been very assiduous about reading what's happened and using that to go forward. And that, that, that sense of informed intuition is very important. People in any high position will exercise a good bit of that. But in addition to that, uh, becoming more self-conscious about getting the right data, having the right timing, talking to people that you know will not provide a kind of biased read or filter through which they're going to pass their advice. These are among what I would end up calling in the book the, the tools of leadership. So on the one hand, intuition, very important. On the other hand, a set of tools, quite important also 
for helping people, all of us, make good decisions. And just to come back to the main point, they're all learned. Can you summarize for us a particularly dramatic example of a go-point situation in a corporate setting? Let me start in a non-corporate setting, then I'll come back into a company setting. I opened a book with a uh, very dramatic moment. Not that I tell it dramatically necessarily, but it's just simply a moment of drama. A young guy named Tom Boatner, eager, 21 years old, is up in Alaska, and he's part of a fire crew that is coming in a set of trucks to an, uh, an area sort of in the shadow of the Alaska Range, one of the great mountain ranges of Alaska. As he arrives, the place is wild, chaotic. Flames are rushing up hills. There's a very strong wind coming off the mountains. There are four or five different fire sites. He jumped out of that truck, young guy, eager, set to go, trained, and he was just charged with adrenaline and ready for bear, so to speak. But... uh, his boss, 29-year-old Robert Burrett, more experienced guy, said, hold on, everybody. I know you want to charge over there and put down, get those shovels and those hoses on those flames. Don't do that. Bob Burrett brought over Tom Boatner and the other members of this fire crew. These are wildland firefighters, U.S. Forest Service and beyond. And Burrett just stood there. He just literally stood there as if there was plenty of time, nothing going on, uh, the look of total cool. And then he very methodically began to ask people on the fire team, uh, what's going on? What, what do you see? Where's the fire going? What's the wind doing? What's the texture of the ground material? After about 10 or 15 minutes of careful data gathering and then working through, then Bob Burrett said, okay, here's what our plan is. And he said, I want this team to go over to that fire, this team over here. In 25 minutes, you're going to report back to me. We'll evolve our our thinking and decision-making in due course. I mention that because Tom Boatner was stunned by the slowness of his boss at that time, not that much older, in getting on the fire. But he appreciated by the end of that brief commentary or setup of of the moment that the role of the decision maker with responsibility is to appraise, have to know what's happening, what the resources are. You have to have then a plan. You've got to be methodical about your decision making. And that, to me anyway, is a um, sort of an emblem or a symbol of, I think, how in addition to doing our backward review, looking back on the week, I think that's how many of us have learned how to make decisions. We've watched people who are our superiors, maybe some people we work with, who, as you witness what they do, they are sometimes terrible, they're sometimes awesome, but as decision makers that you witness, you learn for life lessons for yourself. By way of then carrying that down chronologically, today Tom Boatner is one of America's great incident commanders. That is, he will have in the field sometimes hundreds, sometimes thousands of firefighters that report to him, he has said, and I spent a good bit of time with him on this directly, he has said that uh, whenever I get into a fire zone and I know resources are limited, lives are at risk, I think Bob or Robert Burrett 
It cools me. It gets me to focus. I stand there. I appraise. I pull data together. And then I say, now let's go. So key point I would make with that is that, again, as a learning issue comes here, as we come full circle back to uh, decision-making, I think it is extremely helpful to watch people who are making decisions and to, if you can talk with them, great. If you can interview them, you know, how did you feel? Uh, what was going on in your mind at the time? And I think that is the way, in a sense, from generation to generation, our kind of collective thinking about decision-making is passed along. To go to the company side, I'll, make, I'll mention just one kind of moment of decision I'll mention it in two ways, but it drives the point home. One time had the then CEO of Unisys, at that time employing 40,000 people. He was here to speak to a group of our executive MBA students. He'd gone through incredible restructuring, vast downsizing. Unisys today has come out of that. At the time, it was in a period of crisis. One of the people, one of the students said, his name was Jim Unruh. Jim, what's it like to be a CEO and get to the office in the morning? Unruh kind of stood for a second. He said, well, actually, it's great. I walk through the front door. The, the security guard is so friendly. Mr. Unruh, it's great to see you today. I get up to my office. The staff says, Mr. Unruh, what a wonderful tie you have on today. There's a cup of coffee for me. I sit down. And then at five minutes after nine is my first appointment. And the essence of the appointment, somebody is in to see me who can't make a decision at their level. And that is what then follows for the next eight to 10 hours, one tough decision after another. I witnessed this more directly when I had breakfast with the chief fixed income trader for Lehman Brothers, a big Wall Street investment bank. For this project that went into this book, he invited me to have a very early breakfast. Traders get going at the crack of dawn, as you know. We were up on the 22nd floor or something like that of the Lehman Building, which is just off Times Square there. Fabulous service, lots of linen, wonderful service from the people there. At about 10 minutes to 7, we took the elevator down to the trading floor. The door of the elevator opened. Already there were 100 traders one telephone cradled in their left ear, another telephone in their right ear, dozens of video displays. It was an active trading moment. Same point. Coming down that elevator, it was still a sea of calm. He, those doors opened. He walked into this, this storm almost, got to his office, and was told first thing he is hit with as he walked in that one of his top people had just quit and was going to a cross-town rival that morning. Huge disaster. So I offer these, not of examples uh, necessarily of how they work through a decision, I offer these two points to emphasize how, at their level, life is really just one decision after another. None easy, because the easy ones don't get up to that level. Or wherever you are, if you're listening to this, the easy ones don't get to you. If you carry responsibility in a church, a school, synagogue, a foundation, a government agency, from 9 o'clock through 5 o'clock, your leadership often comes down to decision-making. And I think the final point I would make on that is that 
both of the individuals I just described, Jim Unruh and Rick Reeder as the Lehman trader, they had developed a constitution. It took time to do that. And that is a constitution to know you've got to face a decision, you've got to see both sides, you've got to hear from the various parties, and then you have to act. A bias for action is also one of the great principles out there. The, the point you, you, you raised about uh, you know, taking your time to make decisions uh, reminds me of uh, a conversation I had a few years ago with a person who was at that time the head of one of the top consulting firms. Among his peers, among his colleagues, he had a little bit of a reputation as a procrastinator. And I actually asked him about that uh, when I was interviewing him. And his response was very interesting. He said that there are lots of decisions that you don't need to make because they relate to issues that will just go away if you, if you, if you don't right. tackle them. Uh, and there are others where you do need to focus on, and, and those are the instances where you do need to make decisions. Did, in, your, in writing your book, did you come up with this, and have you found this to be the case with other CEOs as well? There is a spectrum, and at the one end are split-second decisions. Firefighters, police, emergency, traders on a floor. I interviewed at one company where they were trying to get their systems to record foreign exchange trades in hundreds of a second. They were trying to pare down simply hundreds off of several hundreds of a second. At the other end of the spectrum, I spoke with people who were, for example, running energy companies where investment time horizons are years and the costs are billions. I interviewed a Boeing company, for example, focusing on the 787, the great the Dreamliner, which is Boeing's future. It looks like it's doing pretty well, as it turns out. That decision to create and build the Dreamliner took several years. So there is a spectrum, and I think to then put a, uh, I suppose, a prescriptive line on each end of the spectrum here, if the decision is time-bound, if somebody else is going to be on the high ground, if a competitor will be in the space before you get there, then timeliness is a key requirement, put it that way. To put that a little bit differently, the U.S. Marine Corps, which trains officers in the art of combat, knowing that the Marines are often first in, first to arrive, first to get out, timeliness is key. The Marine Corps creates a culture where indecision is fatal. Make a decision is the adage that Marine Corps officers are taught. At the other end of the spectrum, by way of example, Robert Rubin, our former Treasury Secretary, was famous for maximum optionality. And what that fancy phrase came down to is he said, I don't want to make a decision because they're so big. They're often so monumental. I, I want to make it when it has to be decided. And I want to get as much input. I want to see how these political forces are arrayed. And so he quite famously, and he's written about this in his own book on his experience in the Bill Clinton administration, he was famous for saying, we're just not going to make that decision now. We're going to make it when we have to make it. That's a way of saying there is a spectrum. You need to know where you're on it with a given decision. And maybe just one more quick thought on that. Whether it's a long-term decision or a split-second decision, there is a point when you have to force yourself to make it. And it's a self-conscious moment. This is the go point. I'm going to make that decision. 
Anne Livermore at Hewlett-Packard has long followed a dictum in, in, as she works with her tens of thousands of employees at HP that report to her that I want you to make decisions that are good enough. So don't make them too quickly. I don't want anybody shooting from the hip. On the other hand, I don't want them made always perfectly. That's analysis paralysis to phrase it differently. And therefore, she's created the culture of finding the right place or the right moment to make the decision. The Marine Corps, to go back to the core for a second, talks 70%. When you're 70% confident, people are 70% on board, 70% consensus is there, 70% of the due diligence has been done, go. It's really a way of saying, see where you are in that spectrum and make certain you don't go too early, but don't go too late. How important um, are counselors, advisors, mentors in making these decisions? It's a great question because I think I've underappreciated in my own experience in talking with people until of late that having at least one and preferably several unbiased inside counselors to run your ideas across or with, absolutely vital. Now that shows up in more statistical research. It also shows up by way of example. I'll just pick one here to make the point. John Chambers, who for the last 11 years has run Cisco Systems, is known to be a very good decision maker. And Cisco, I think as many of the listeners will know, has grown partly through organic growth. That is, they simply put money in R&D, come up with new gadgets for the internet, but extensively through acquisition in Silicon Valley of other internet hardware startup companies. His track record on picking winners and avoiding losers has been very good. I had read about that. I had an occasion to meet him, and I said, Mr. Chambers, is it true that when you make these final decisions on who to acquire, what to acquire, what not to acquire, after your strategy team or your M&A team has made its recommendation to you, how do you reach your final decision? And in particular, is it true that you turn often to Larry Carter, then his chief financial officer? He said, well, look, I not only go to Larry Carter, that's true, I also go to John Morgridge, former CEO at Cisco, now non-executive chair of the company, often comes to the office. Who knows more about the company than them? The CFO, he knows the inside out of what makes value here. The former CEO, now chair, it's obvious he knows it as well as I do, maybe even better. But there's a second reason why they're so good. They know it content-wise. Number two, neither want my job. By that, he meant this. Larry Carter was five years older than John Chambers. As demography goes, Larry Carter knew he would not become CEO when Chambers stepped down because that was not going to happen while Carter was still there. Mortgage has already been in the corner office. He doesn't want to go back. Therefore, when I seek their opinion, I get a completely unbiased, non-self-serving response. This is the idea of an informed, inside Catholic with a small C counselor. Critical shows up in research. Critical, as we know from example as well. Uh, any examples of a really bad decision and, and what lessons you can learn from that? Well, let's see. One bad decision which has no implications for leadership or responsibility. I do mention it in passing in the book. Somebody else dug this one out. 
somebody is flying over a rooftop in a uh, small aircraft. Turns out on the rooftop is a uh, somebody in the nude. The person in the airplane decides to take a closer look. A husband comes up on the rooftop with a machine gun. So it was, let's just say, a not great idea to go over and and and, and, and have a um, have a close look. But uh, yes, uh, the world is filled with bad decisions. And actually, I'll take one just to illustrate how we usefully talk about bad decisions. Should bring out bad decisions. It's hard. I have a hard time myself. And I've made my share of bad decisions for uh, for sure. One of the most famous, quote, bad decisions in the Gettysburg Battle of July 1863, don't want to get this too obscure, is a, a commander working for Robert E. Lee was asked by Robert E. Lee, commander of the Army of Northern Virginia that had invaded Pennsylvania to end the Civil War in Southern terms, a commander named Richard Ewell was ordered by Robert E. Lee to take a key hill. As moments will unfold, he decides not to take that hill. Robert E. Lee gave it a bit of a, his statement was a little bit ambiguous, thus giving the commander a little bit of an out if he opted not to take the hill. Robert E. Lee's very famous order is, take that hill if practicable. Historians have said it almost for sure was. Other commanders on the scene said, Come on, boss, let's take that hill. The failure to take that hill for the Confederacy fed directly into Pickett's charge two days later, which is what ends Lee's campaign in Pennsylvania in the north, and it's the beginning of the end of the Confederacy. Richard Ewell, after the war, will say there were some serious mistakes made at Gettysburg, and I made my my share. We take people out groups of managers and students to really stand where Richard Yule did stand to recreate that moment because his indecision was of great historical consequence. One historian, in fact, described it this way. In the moments when Richard Yule just stood there, some of the most consequential seconds in American history were ticking off, and he did nothing. So we stand there, and it is a reminder to be savvy, to use the phrase I've used earlier, to make certain you have a bias for action. That is, if, if there's a moment when decisions should be made, be ready to make it. Don't shoot from the hip. But if it's a moment where, you are, where your leadership is on the line, I think it's, it is a learned skill. I think we need to work on it. And this point, for me anyway, is driven home every time I stand where Richard Yule did stand. It is a reminder. Many decisions are inconsequential. Some are monumental. I think we probably have time for one more question. <clears throat> you have consulted with several companies on corporate governance issues, and indeed, uh, the boardroom is, is a factor in many of the latest news stories, including Hewlett-Packard and the not-too-recent past in Enron, Tyco, Fannie Mae, HealthSouth, etc. What did you learn about decision-making in boardrooms? It's an area that seems to be full of secrecy. Uh, I don't think people really understand what goes on there. Um, what, what is the decision-making process in the corporate boardroom? The corporate boardroom remains one of the great mysteries of the universe. People... Uh, 
share a code who are directors that we do not talk about what happens in the boardroom. The violation of that code, in fact, explains why Patricia Dunn, non-executive chair of Hewlett-Packard, decided to start this investigation of which of her directors indeed were talking to the press because it violated that code. Very strongly held uh, research this area for quite a while. It goes back many decades. But I think boards are probably doing all of us a disservice by not being more transparent about how they are reaching decisions, what has gone into those decisions. And of course, directors need to meet in private. Matters are often very consequential, highly sensitive, billions of dollars at stake, reputations being built or ruined as they make their discussions go forward. So we don't necessarily need to see have a tape recording, so to speak, of the deliberations. But I think boards would be wise to help investors, employees, and customers know more about how they make decisions. And I think as the light is now coming into this dark room, or this room with better metaphors, room with locked doors, I think what we're going to find, and I've been trying to get in myself in many different ways, I've talk with many people who indeed will talk about what's happened in their in their boardroom, that when boards are attentive and focused on making the decisions they should make, how much do they pay the executives? Who is the CEO? Should they bet on a aircraft like the 787 or not? The top management of a firm like Boeing, very well served. And in my view, that's much of what directors actually do do. A lot of theories about what they do. I think they earn their pay, modest as it is by some standards, by sitting in a room, working as a team, and reaching good decisions. When boards have failed to do that, when directors have not been attentive, have not seen the data that they should have been seen, then disasters often have resulted. To put maybe a final line on that, If the board had been doing its job of making good decisions at, let's say, Enron or at Tyco, I don't think the top management team, whatever their proclivities, would have been allowed to ruin the company, not to mention their own careers. In the case of Enron, I've looked at that in some detail at how that board was making decisions, were assisted in that case by a U.S. Senate investigation that through subpoena produced lots of great information. What comes out there without question is a set of directors who, when key decisions were in front of them, should they form these special purpose entities where debt was off the balance sheet? Should they suspend the Enron Ethics Code, which they did several times? These are decisions that needed time, thoughtfulness. In the case of the ethics decision, it should have never been, that code should never have been suspended. But the record says this the directors, hardly paid attention to those decisions. A few minutes, decisions made, get on with it, they said to the top management team. So I think the board is still one of the great mysteries of the universe, as I said earlier. I think we need to know more about it. I think I would urge executives and directors to help the rest of us better appreciate how they make decisions behind closed doors. Great. Thanks, Mike. Thanks very much for talking to our listeners. Thank you. For more information, please visit our website at knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.